he said, there has not been any act or social progress achieved in this country that labor did not either sponsor or support it wholeheartedly. And when I heard that, I thought, what else do you need? 100 years ago in 1921, a multiracial uprising of union coal miners commandeered trains and cars across the state of West Virginia and emptied armories of their contents as they marched to the town of Mingo, where a hundred of their fellow union miners were being held without charge by the corrupt authorities. It was printed in the preamble to the constitution of an early coal miners' union. Says Wally, good verse. Says I, what's the tune? I don't know, says Wally. I suppose some old Irish tune might fit it. Like the song from the Irish famine in the 1840s, the Pradies they grow small. Let's try it, says I. It fit, and it's been sung to that melody ever since. Welcome to Labor History Today. On today's show, we remember actor Ed Asner. His role as a tough newspaper man on the Lou Grant show during the 1970s and early 1980s was an inspiration to me as a young journalist at the time. He was also an ardent unionist, serving two terms as president of the Screen Actors Guild. Ed once said, You're either a union or you're not. You either go on strike for issues and know what you're striking for, or you don't. He not only fought passionately for his fellow actors, but for the victims of poverty, violence, war, and legal and social injustice here in the United States and around the globe. Ed talked with Judy Ansell on the Heartland Labor Forum radio show back in 2013. This Labor Day weekend marks the 100-year anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain, which was part of the West Virginia Mine Wars, in which miners and their families laid down their lives and a foundation to fight for every worker's labor rights. From Empathy Media Labs, we bring you David Rovick's audio essay, about the battle that was the largest armed insurrection in the United States since the Civil War. And on Labor History in 2... The year was 1882. That was the day that the first Labor Day celebration and parade took place in New York City. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. We begin this week's show with a short bonus report that contributor Alan Weirdak put together in connection with the ongoing nationwide strike by Nabisco workers. Here is Alan. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a quick segment of Cool Things in the Meanie Archives. I'm your host, Alan Weirdak. Um, here just to uh, talk about uh, the current Nabisco strike uh, of the uh, Bakery Workers Union um, so as many of you know, uh, currently all Nabisco production and distribution facilities in the United States are still on strike. This is the first Nabisco strike since 1969 when Nabisco plants in 13 U.S. cities closed for roughly two months. Um, where do we fit in in the archives? Well, we have the official records of the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers in International Union, uh, also known as the BCTGM records. Um, and in those records, we actually found um, a folder full of photos 
um, from previous Nabisco strikes. Um, these photos are all undated, uh, but most of them show Nabisco workers from Local 300 in Chicago, and there are also a few other photos of Nabisco workers from Local 492 in Philadelphia. Um, these photos will be attached to the show notes. Um, you can also find them on our Instagram and Twitter, the handle for which is at UMDMLA. Um, so reach out to us for more information on these photos and other materials in the uh, BCTGM records. And to our brothers and sisters on the picket lines, one day longer, one day stronger. All right, everybody, take care. Remembering the Battle of Blair Mountain. 100 years ago in 1921, a multiracial uprising of union coal miners commandeered trains and cars across the state of West Virginia and emptied armories of their contents as they marched to the town of Mingo, where a hundred of their fellow union miners were being held without charge by the corrupt authorities. Somewhere around 15,000 miners engaged in three days and nights of crossfire with thousands of the more well-to-do members of West Virginia society, including every cop in the entire state and all the gun thugs and the mine operators could find available to hire. The bosses used the racial divide in the U.S. to keep the working class in a constant state of conflict. So much of the labor movement of the day rejected this strategy and employed their own strategy of inclusion. Of the 15,000 or so people laying siege to Mingo at the end of August of that year, an estimated 2,000 of them were black. This was a multiracial uprising of unprecedented scale. During the three days that the miners were trying to liberate their comrades imprisoned in Mingo, dozens of people were killed, the total numbers never to be known. Thousands of women of all backgrounds were actively involved with the struggle, coordinating essential logistics like food and medical care for the thousands of men under arms. Planes were flown hundreds of miles away to drop bombs on the Union miners. There is so much more that can be said about what led to both the Tulsa pogrom and the multiracial uprising in West Virginia, which both happened within months of each other in 1921. The impact of the unspeakably horrendous bloodbath known as World War I, along with the terribly devastating global pandemic that it gave rise to, would be hard to overstate. In the face of such a long-standing history of white supremacy and settler colonialism, so much of the labor movement explicitly rejected that nonsense. It's so important that all of these things be remembered. There is another America. Remember it. Those miners died for you. You should at least know who they were. And then, let's all follow in their footsteps. Long live the multiracial uprising in the hills of Appalachia in 1921. Long live the Battle of Blair Mountain. To the company Step along this march, candy one, candy one. Many stones can form an arch, singly none, singly none. And by union, what we will can be accomplished still. Drops of water turn a mill, singly none. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. 
This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by United Steelworkers District 11 and Teamsters Local 41. United Steelworkers District 11, representing 35,000 members in the Midwest, protecting worker rights and organizing the unorganized. We support union-made products. Teamsters Local 41 is the largest Teamster local in Kansas City and the surrounding area and represents approximately 6,000 members in varied industries. We help workers and their families achieve and live the American dream. We proudly support the heroes in uniform to protect our country and the heroes of the healthcare industry that put their lives on the line every day to protect all of us. And the Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, it's almost Labor Day, and all of our volunteers here on the Heartland Labor Forum are celebrating by sharing our recommendations of our favorite books about working people and we'll also share some favorite labor songs and reveal the origins of our theme song. We'll remember actor and union leader Ed Asner, Kansas Cityan by birth and unionist by conviction. In 2013, I interviewed him here in the studio at KKFI. Here are a few segments from that interview. Ed Asner was born in Kansas City in 1929. He's 83 and has no plans to retire. As a TV actor, he won more Emmys than any other. He gained fame playing Lou Grant on The Mary Tyler Moore Show, whose theme you just heard in the 1970s, and then transformed the character into, the, uh, into a drama, The Lou Grant Show. He's been in over 200 films and TV series, including dramas, comedies, documentaries, and cartoons. He was in JFK, Roots, The Book of Daniel. He played Santa Claus in Elf and Carl Fredrickson, The Old Man in Up. Perhaps Ed's love of unions began with a stint on the assembly line at the General Motors Fairfax plant as a young man. He served two terms as president of the Screen Actors Guild from 1981 to 85 and has been notoriously outspoken on issues of labor, human rights, and U.S. foreign policy for decades. He supported justice for Leonard Peltier and Mumia Abu-Jamal, opposed our wars in Central America and the U.S. blockade of Cuba. He was a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and more recently supports Move On. While Asner's acting career plowed through obstacles set up by those who hated his outspoken politics, he has paid a price, as you'll hear in our interview uh, of him. On the Heartland Labor Forum, we celebrate troublemakers, and it's clear that Ed Asner is a lifelong agitator. He came to the KKFI studio on a very hot June afternoon, and he was thirsty. He patiently signed a few autographs, was touched when our engineer, John Todd, presented him with a photo of his late brother, Ben, in his record store, Capers Corners, and immediately started agitating for a cold drink. <laughs> we won't play the drink part. <laughs> we asked Ed Asner how he got involved in the labor movement. This was while he was starring in the Lou Grant show. He said that in the early 70s, he tried to approach the union, the Screen Actors Guild, but it was filled with elitists who were, were not interested in his input. Were there issues in the union that you felt weren't being addressed because these people were, I guess I would there assume, out of touch? There are always issues within the union. Always. The best, the most progressive, you'll always have 
issues, as you well know. Sure. Uh, some of the laws were outrageous, but uh, uh, in '80, we um, we were on strike, and um, the um, the rebels weren't happy with Bill Shallert, who was a good man, uh, because he was too too tolerant, not intransigent enough. So they. Um, they stampede, and I spoke out for them. Uh, it's the first time I made an appearance for the union, and um, I forget who the guy was. I appeared opposite the the uh, production spokesman in negotiations, and I felt very intimidated. And I, I had insisted somebody come there to be with me to to coach me, and nobody was there. So I was out there all by myself and. Uh, but I was certainly broadcasting in L.A. And uh, he turns to me and he said, um, well, um, why are you striking now? Uh, the, the reasons had already been elicited. Uh, he said, why are you striking now? And I said, well, when, when would you recommend we strike? <laughs> uh, and that, I mean, that so blew him out of the water it, it was a telling blow, and 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 the production, the uh, the production spokesman never scored any points whatsoever. So I, I made a good impression on TV, and uh, they began to push me in front of the press more and more. Uh huh. And then you got elected president of the mm. union. Now, when you were president of the union, you were still doing Lou Grant, uh, which, by the way, got numerous Emmy awards uh, and other awards. I love that show, to tell you the truth. Uh, I was really sad when it went off the air. but uh, it, And it was canceled in 1982. So, you know, was it the content of the show with dealing with such controversial issues? You even dealt with gay rights, I guess. No, uh, I don't no. think so. Well, I don't I recall dealing. I, at the time, I felt we only didn't deal with three things. Busing, gun control... <laughs> And what was the third one? I can't remember the third one. Abortion? <laughs> Abortion, yeah. Yeah, figures. So was it that? Was it your union activism? Or what that got the show canceled? No, it was my involvement in Salvador. Oh, really? Yeah. And what's behind that? I mean, was there pressure put on the network? Do you know? Well, certainly. One of our sponsors was... Um, Kimberly Clark, who had three factories in El Salvador. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, Vidal said soon, uh, whatever program they had on, um, they canceled. And um, uh, the candy company, uh, British British company. Oh, um, the, the, Cadbury. No? Cad, yeah, Cadbury. They're the ones who canceled... Uh, Advertising on our show. I see. Uh, but then, because of the stink that was being made, the uproar, when the show was canceled, a um, wonderful guy, uh, I can't remember his name, vice president of CBS, came out to see me and tried to convince me that loss of sponsors is not why the show was canceled. That... Uh, 
There were sponsors waiting in line. I never saw them, but I'll take his word for it. But he said um, that there were sponsors waiting in line. Okay, okay. So what else? If it wasn't loss of sponsors, what was the reason? My uh, attracting too much right-wing attention. Really? Yeah, uh, because of what I was saying about Salvador. Uh, I mean, they they perverted it, and I became a communist because of the perversion. Mm -hmm. So that uh, whatever came out of my mouth was uh, communistic. Well, you you also weren't much of a fan of Ronald Reagan, right? Well, he, he certainly fostered... Uh, if you've been reading the news out of Guatemala right, lately, uh, Rios Montt uh, was convicted and uh, uh, and then forgiven or partner or they're waiting to uh, <laughs> right. try him again. And uh, Reagan, Reagan had been a staunch unionist when he was president of the Guild and belonged to the left wing, encouraged Rios Montt without citing what what he was doing, but uh, opened the path to death squads, etc., mm-hmm. far mm-hmm. more than before. Finally, <clears throat> Ed Asner talked about his disappointment with his own union, the Screen Actors Guild, over the merger with AFTRA. So I asked him, so what's wrong with unions, or why are unions Nothing in such wrong decline? With unions. They're the greatest thing uh, since sliced bread. They are, are the, the best equipment in the world. To, uh, uh, my first out-of-town meeting, I, I went to, a, to, to Denver and attended a union meeting there, the branch of SAG there. And Bud Wolf, the executive secretary of AFTRA, was in attendance at that same meeting. And, and I listened as he spoke, and he said, there has not been any act or social progress achieved in this country that labor did not either sponsor or support it wholeheartedly. And when I heard that, I thought, what else do you need to hear that? Uh, when, I, when I see it, I mean, I, I know that there are criminal uh, labor racketeers, labor organizers. They, 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 it's, it, it's horrible. But there must be ways to rein them in. But the point is that with labor, with unionized labor, a, a, a level of decency and fairness can be achieved in establishing wages and working conditions. And when those levels are established, the non-union man who then gets a job because they don't want to go union automatically benefits from whatever the laboring man fought and struck for to achieve a bottom line of reward, of fairness, of acceptance. And this being the biggest capitalist country in the world, that's why we've done something like 5% now, are we? 6.9% in the private sector and about 11.9% all yeah. overall. Yeah. There is a, you know, just as, as, as the, the effort to overturn Roosevelt's fair New Deal, 
Lyndon Johnson's fair deal is going on in this country and some success is being achieved. The same applies to labor. That the more labor can be defeated, the more you can advance on the other fronts. Ed Asner was an activist, an agitator, a curmudgeon, and beloved by his many fans. As a star, he made great contributions to expose violations of human rights in El Salvador and Guatemala and to oppose U.S. imperialism in Latin America. He was one of a kind. We'll post the entire interview from 2013 on the KKFI webpage by tomorrow. Stephen Hill is a new volunteer who got right into digging into the history of our theme song, Step by Step. Stephen? Uh, thanks, Judy. Uh, listeners to the Heartland Labor Forum will be familiar with the song that opens our program. <laughs> step-by-step and punctuates the necessity of working together with a hauntingly beautiful melody. The song has deep, root, deep roots in the folk labor movement and appeared in a U.S. television series in the 60s called Rainbow Quest, which was devoted to folk music and hosted by Pete Seeger. Hill, uh, no relation, is attributed by Seeger to finding the lyrics for the song. Hill, who Seeger called Wally, was a pianist and composer who edited the folk and protest musical reference work known as the People's Songbook and was also a frequent collaborator with Seeger on various musical projects. Hill found the lyrics uh, almost word for word in the preamble to the Constitution and Laws for the Government and Guidance of the American Miners Association, written in 1864. And we have a link to that on the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page. In his songbook, Where Have All the Flowers Gone?, Pete Seeger says this. It was printed in the preamble to the Constitution of an early coal miners union. Says Wally, good verse. Says I, what's the tune? I don't know, says Wally. I suppose some old Irish tune might fit it. Like the song from the Irish famine in the 1840s, the Pratties, they grow small. Let's try it, says I. It fit, and has been sung to that melody ever since. 
So there we have it. The Heartland Labor Forum's opener has deep roots in the American labor movement with a strong connection to the Heartland itself, as the American Miners Association was the first national union of miners in the United States and was formed in 1861 at a convention in St. Louis, Missouri. The song remains a favorite of folk labor to this day, with John McCutcheon saying, after being asked why the song is his favorite by Anthony Ashbold and Murray Mulharrow, it was like a perfect distillation of the sentiment of the song. So it's the combination of the connection I have uh, to because of who I learned it from. Secondly, the way it talks about the basic, most important things about communities and unions. And thirdly, it's just a perfect song as a piece of craft work. We at the Heartland Labor Forum couldn't agree more. The link to that inter interview is on our Facebook page. Another new volunteer is Mark Gallus, who offered up his pet labor song collection. We'll play several with comments by Mark through the show. Mark? Sarah Ogan Gunning was a singer-songwriter from the coal country of eastern Kentucky. Both her father and first husband were coal miners. In 1937, she wrote, Come All You Coal Miners, a song imploring miners to organize to secure better working conditions and better wages. This version of the song is performed by Uncle Tupelo, a pioneer of the alt-country genre. From 1992, here's Uncle Tupelo with Coal Miners. Come all you coal miners, wherever you may be. Listen to the story that I relate to thee. Our name is nothing extra. The truth to you I tell I am a coal miner And I'm sure Wish you well I was born in old Kentucky In a coal camp born and bred I know about old beans Bulldog gravy and cornbread I know how the miners Work and slave in the coal mines Every day for a dollar in the company store for that is all they pay Mining is the most dangerous work in our land today With Plenty of dirty slaving work very little pay Coal miners won't you wake up and open your eyes and see What this dirty capitalist system has done you and me. Dear miners, they will slave you till you can't work no more. What will you get for your labor but a dollar to come to store? A tumble down shack to live in, snow and rain pouring through the top. You have to pay the company rent, your payments never stop. They take our very lifeblood, they take our children's lives Take fathers away from children, take husbands away from wives Coal miners, won't you organize wherever you may be And make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me Let's sink this capitalist system to 
through the darkest pits of hell. Tom Gepkin, Gep, excuse me, Tom Gepkin picked a book about a strike, or should we say, an ordeal by tear gas. Tom. Thank you, Judy. Uh, tonight, I am going to discuss the book Staley, The Fight for a New American Labor Movement. It's written by Stephen K. Ashby and C.J. Hawking. This is an on-the-ground labor history, and it focuses on the bitterly contested labor conflict of the early 1990s at the A.E. Staley Corn Processing Plant in Decatur, Illinois. Workers waged one of the most hard-fought struggles in recent labor history, it was family owned, but it was bought out by a national, multinational conglomerate, Tate and Lyle, which immediately launched a full-scale assault on its union workforce. The union at the time was the Allied Industrial Workers, Local 837, and they responded uh, by educating and mobilizing its members, organizing strong support from the religious and the African-American communities. They built a national and international solidarity movement and engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience at the plant gates. So what they were was a company that had been a union company for 50 years, had a nice contract. The company got sold. Contract talks with the new company began. Uh, the union said, let's start with this, the contract that we have and build on it. And the company said, no, we're going to start with this 16 page contract that gives the company that removes everything. It, it, there's no restrictions on anything in this 16 page document. Their goal was to force the comp the union out on strike so that they could bring in replacement workers and break the union. Well, the union said, we're not going to do that right now. We are going to do things like work by the rule. And that would slow everything down. The, the, they had a highly educated workforce that knew how to do their jobs. And they would go to the supervisor and say, this machine's not working. Uh, what do you want me to do? Where historically, they would just know what to do and do it and the machine would operate. So working by the rule was uh, doing was harming the company and, and it was it was doing what it needed to do, but the company wouldn't back off. So the, over time, the company locked the union out, brought in replacement workers, and the lockout lasted over 900 days. Uh, as And so they went out and got solidarity uh, groups with other unions. They worked with the city, they worked with the community, they had rallies, they had uh, all across the country, uh, locals would adopt a family and start sending them money. And they had a group called the Road Warriors and the Road Warriors would travel around the country and they would meet with different unions and looking for support, which they got. Uh, and talking to Judy about this, she went to some of these uh, r rallies that they had. Of course. Do you want to talk about some of that? Well, very briefly, um, <clears throat> there were uh, years on years of rallies in Decatur, Illinois. Um, it was the war zone. And we would go, there would be whole delegations, there would be buses from Kansas City of people going to Decatur to show our support for not only the um, Staley workers, but also the Caterpillar workers and the Firestone workers. 
and um, there was a lot of enthusiasm about the strike. Uh, we really believed they could win. I mean, the road warrior uh, tactic was a really creative tactic. They had uh, they had support all over the country. Unfortunately, their union sold them out. That was the United Paper Workers, and uh, they disappeared as a union, as they should have. And uh, and what was left of that union went into the United Steelworkers, but um, uh, it was it was a real tragedy. But it was typical of the 1990s. These companies were out to bust unions. At the same time that uh, Staley was on strike, in the same city, Caterpillar was on strike, right. and also Bridgestone Firestone was on strike. And while all this was going on, the, the original union, the Allied Industrial Workers, merged with the United Paper Workers International Union in the middle of all this. And uh, I think Caterpillar went back first, with a, uh, worked without a contract until they hammered something out. And then I don't remember if the, the rubber workers got a contract or not, or if they just went back to work. But when it was all said and done, Staley was out there on their own. They had they begin to have some dissension inside their the solidarity movement of the of the members because a group uh, wanted to go ahead and accept their contract that the that the company provided and uh, over time the UPIU the United Paper Workers International Union kind of intervened and they accepted the bad contract and things have not been the same since. But it was a very interesting book on all of the different tactics that they used. There's more choices than just going out on strike. And what's the name of the book, Tom? It's called Staley, The Fight for a New American Labor Movement. Okay. Thanks a lot. Um, uh -huh. Judy Morgan is also into strikes. Maybe that's because she went to jail during the Kansas City teacher strike in the 1970s. <laughs> Judy, tell us about some strikes. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. Uh, actually, I participated in two strikes in 1974 and 1977 in the Teachers Union in Kansas City. And uh, I've also really believed it's important to uh, support our other union brothers and sisters when they're on strike. I think the most recent one a lot of us helped out was uh, when the GM workers, United Auto Workers, were on strike several years ago, and they ended up having a very, I think, a pretty successful outcome from that strike. So I've always felt like the strike is the ultimate weapon that uh, workers can use against unfair employers. You know, when we with actually withdraw our work, that's what we can do. So it's, it's it's been an interesting topic to me, and, and uh, you know, Judy, you asked me to come back on Heartland Labor Forum after I turned out as a state rep, and uh, I had one stint before for a while, and I really enjoyed it. I like working with you and all the other um, volunteers. So, Strike was one of the books that you suggested that we uh, interview the author, so I had a chance. Uh, I volunteered to do that and had a chance to interview Jeremy Brecker, and he's amazing what he did. He... Um, and, and you're very you're very familiar with this because you really have been an advocate for teaching labor history in our mm -hmm. schools, and as you know, our schools do a very don't do a very good job of doing that. And most of us, even in the labor union, really are not as educated about labor history as we should be. And I consider myself one of those people too. So, reading this book, Jeremy actually took mass strikes starting with the railroad workers in 1877 mm -hmm. in, in our country, and basically chronicled 
canceled all these strikes. He went into the you know the United Auto Workers, which is a when the 30s when they first started organizing May Day. But not only did he do that, but he's he wrote this book initially in 1972, when there was very little. Uh, he really had to do a lot of tedious research to get the uh, material for the book. But he's done a number of revisions, the most recent one in 2020. So he brought it up to date, and he actually did the mass movements like Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, the Fight for 15, which is one that's really dear to many of us, and then the teacher strikes, the more recent teacher strikes. And, of course, I was very interested in those. And... Um, he did not look at things from the view of leadership. He looked at it from the point of view of the rank-and-file members, which I think is really important. So I think anyone who wants to learn about mass strikes, mass movements, um, this is the book to read. It's a great book, and I really um, think it's amazing what Jeremy has done in terms of this book. Okay, and the name of it is? It's Strike by Jeremy Brecker. He's written about, I think, 15 or 16 labor books, but uh -huh. this one he started when he was a young man, and now he's about my age, I think. And <laughs> he's done a number of revisions. The most re 72 is the first one, and now 2020, this is the one I read, the revised 2020. Okay, great. Thanks, Judy. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to our engineer, Jen Zaman. Places in our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back too. Send us your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum KKFI at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming schedule, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening to the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 o'clock or to our Friday morning rebroadcast at 5 o'clock right here at 90.1 FM KKFI.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1882. That was the day that the first Labor Day celebration and parade took place in New York City. The New York Sun printed a vivid report of the parade of 10,000 marching workers. The paper described, quote, men wearing regalia, men with society aprons and men with flags, musical instruments, badges, and all the other paraphernalia of a procession. The article went on to say, quote, as far ahead as one could see, and as far down the side streets as forms and faces could be distinguished, the windows and roofs and even the lampposts and awning frames were occupied by persons anxious to get a good view of the first parade in New York of working men of all trades united in one organization. All along the line, cheers were sent up. The reporter described the colorful banners carried by each trade union and noted that following the bricklayer's came, quote, two decorated wagons containing brick arches. On each side of one of the wagons were the inscriptions, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for recreation. And, get on to it, the union will never surrender. From New York, the idea of setting aside a holiday for workers spread. Oregon became the first state to officially recognize the holiday in 1897. Colorado, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York established a Labor Day that year as well. By 1894, 23 more states celebrated the workers' holiday. It was that year that President Grover Cleveland declared it a national holiday in response to the Pullman strike and boycott that began in Chicago. Labor Day is the day to honor the sacrifices made by labor fighting for safe and fair workplaces. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app, and even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it on your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music includes two versions of Step by Step, the first by John McCutcheon, and the second a performance last year at the St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Seattle, Washington. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time. <laughs>